Chapter 22 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 22 After the Armistice. The months that followed the signing of the Armistice were the darkest in Gilbert Chesterton's life. Nothing but the immense natural high spirits of the new witness group could have carried him through the many years in which he cried their unheeded warnings to England. But now as the war drew to an end, a new note of optimism had become audible. The Prussian menace was almost conquered. Our soldiers would return and would bring with them the courage and confidence of victors. They might overthrow the governing plutocracy and build again an England of freedom and sanity. But one soldier did not return, the one to whom this group looked for comradeship and inspiration. On December 6, 1918, Cecil Chesterton died in hospital in France. His courage was heroic, native, positive, and equal, wrote Belloc, always at the highest potentiality of courage. Gilbert wrote, We lived long enough to march to the victory which was for him a supreme vision of liberty and the light. The work which he put first, he did before he died. The work which he put second, but very near to the other, he left for us to do. There are many of us who will abandon many other things and recognize no greater duty than to do it. This second work was the fight at home against corruption and for freedom for the English people. It was impossible to remember Gilbert Chesterton vividly and to write the word bitterness. It was rather with a profound and burning indignation that he thought of his fellow Englishmen who had fought and died, and then looked up and saw Marconi George and Marconi Isaacs still rulers of the fate of his country. Thus meditating, he wrote an elegy in a country churchyard. The men that work for England, they have their graves at home, and bees and birds of England about the cross can roam. But they that fought for England, following a falling star, alas, alas for England, they have their graves afar. And they that rule in England, in stately conclave met, alas, alas for England, they have no graves as yet. From the Collected Poems, page 65. Strange irony of Cecil Chesterton's last weeks. His old enemy, Godfrey Isaacs, brought an action for perjury against Sir Charles Hobhouse. Both men's counsel agreed, and the judge stressed that perjury lay on one side or the other. The case was given against Isaacs. He appealed, and his appeal was dismissed. Perjury had lain on one side or the other. Meanwhile, news came that Rufus Isaacs, now Lord Redding, had gone with Lloyd George to Paris to attend the peace conference. All that this might mean, the peril to Poland, the danger of a Prussia kept at the head of the Germanies for the sake of international finance, an abasement of England before those countries that had not forgotten Marconi, all this was vivid to Gilbert Chesterton. In the same number of The New Witness, in which he mourned his brother, December 13, 1918, he wrote, under the sign of the world's end, an open letter to Lord Redding. My Lord, I address to you a public letter, as it is upon a public question. It is unlikely that I should ever trouble you with any private letter or any private question, and least of all on the private question that now fills my mind. It would be impossible altogether to ignore the irony that has in the last few days brought to an end the great Marconi duel in which you and I, in some sense, played the part of seconds. 
That personal part of the matter ended when Cecil Chesterton found death in the trenches to which he had freely gone, and Godfrey Isaacs found dismissal in those very courts to which he once successfully appealed. But believe me, I do not write on any personal matter, nor do I write strangely enough, perhaps, with any personal acrimony. On the contrary, there is something in these tragedies that almost unnaturally clarifies and enlarges the mind. And I think I write partly because I may never feel so magnanimous again. It would be irrational to ask you for sympathy, but I am sincerely moved to offer it. You are far more unhappy, for your brother is still alive. If I turn my mind to you and your type of politics, it is not wholly and solely through that trick of abstraction by which in moments of sorrow a man finds himself staring at a blot on the tablecloth or an insect on the ground. I do, of course, realize, with that sort of dull clarity, that you are in practice a blot on the English landscape, and that the political men who made you are the creeping things of the earth. But I am, in all sincerity, less in a mood to mock at the sham virtues they parade than to try to imagine the more real virtues which they successfully conceal. In your own case, there is the less difficulty, at least in one matter. I am very willing to believe that it was the mutual dependence of the members of your family that has necessitated the sacrifice of the dignity and independence of my country and that if it be decreed that the English nation is to lose its public honor, it will be partly because certain men of the tribe of Isaacs kept their own strange private loyalty. I am willing to count this to you for a virtue, as your own code may interpret virtue, but the fact would alone be enough to make me protest against any man professing your code and administering our law. And it is upon this point of your public position and not upon any private feelings that I address you today. Not only is there no question of disliking any race, but there is not here even a question of disliking any individual. It does not raise the question of hating you. Rather, it would raise, in some strange fashion, the question of loving you. Has it ever occurred to you how much a good citizen would have to love you in order to tolerate you? Have you ever considered how warm, indeed how wild, must be our affection for the particular stray stockbroker who has somehow turned into a Lord Chief Justice, to be strong enough to make us accept him as Lord Chief Justice? It is not a question of how much we dislike you, but of how much we like you, or whether we like you more than England, more than Europe, more than Poland, the pillar of Europe, more than honor, more than freedom, more than facts. It is not, in short, a question of how much we dislike you, but of how far we can be expected to adore you, to die for you, to decay and degenerate for you, for your sake to be despised, for your sake to be despicable. Have you ever considered in a moment of meditation how curiously valuable you would really have to be, that Englishmen should in comparison be careless of all the things you have corrupted and indifferent to all the things that you may yet destroy? Are we to lose the war which we have already won? That nothing else is involved in losing the full satisfaction of the national claim of Poland. Is there any man who doubts that the Jewish international is unsympathetic with that full national demand? And is there any man who doubts that you will be sympathetic with the Jewish international? No man who knows anything of the interior facts of modern Europe has the faintest doubt on either point. No man doubts when he knows whether or no he cares. 
Do you seriously imagine that those who know, that those who care, are so idolatrously infatuated with Rufus Daniel Isaacs as to tolerate such risk, let alone such ruin? Are we to set up as the standing representative of England a man who is a standing joke against England? That nothing else is involved in setting up the chief Marconi minister as our chief foreign minister? It is precisely in those foreign countries with which such a minister would have to deal that his name would be, and has been, a sort of pantomime proverb like Panama or the South Sea Bubble. Foreigners were not threatened with fine and imprisonment for calling a spade a spade, and a speculation a speculation. Foreigners were not punished with the perfectly lawless law of libel for saying about public men what those very men had afterwards to admit in public. Foreigners were lookers-on, who were really allowed to see most of the game. When our public saw nothing of the game, and they made not a little game of it, are they henceforth to make game of everything that is said and done in the name of England in the affairs of Europe? Have you the serious impudence to call us anti-Semites because we are not so extravagantly fond of one particular Jew as to endure this for him alone? No, my lord, the beauties of your character shall not blind us to all elements of reason and self-preservation. We can still control our affections. If we are fond of you, we are not quite so fond of you as that. If we are anything but anti-Semite, we are not pro-Semite in that particular impersonal fashion. If we are lovers, we will not kill ourselves for love. After weighing and valuing all your virtues, the qualities of our own country take their due and proportional part in our esteem. Because of you, she shall not die. We cannot tell in what fashion you yourself feel your strange position, and how much you know it is a false position. I have sometimes thought I saw in the faces of such men as you that you felt the whole experience as unreal, a mere masquerade, as I myself might feel it, if, by some fantastic luck in the old fantastic civilization of China, I were raised from the yellow button to the coral button, or from the coral button to the peacock's feather. Precisely because these things would be grotesque, I might hardly feel them as incongruous. Precisely because they meant nothing to me, I might be satisfied with them. I might enjoy them without any shame at my own impudence. Precisely because I could not feel them as dignified, I should not know what I had degraded. My fancy may be quite wrong, but it is but one of the many attempts I have made to imagine and allow for an alien psychology in this matter. And if you, and Jews far worthier than you, are wise, they will not dismiss as anti-Semitism what may well prove the last serious attempt to sympathize with Semitism. I allow for your position more than most men allow for it, more, most assuredly, than most men will allow for it in the darker days that yet may come. It is utterly false to suggest that either I, or a better man than I, whose work I now inherit, desired this disaster for you and yours. I wish you no such ghastly retribution. Daniel, son of Isaac, go in peace, but go. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. In those last sentences, the spirit of prophecy was upon Chesterton after a truly dark and deep fashion. Yet even he did not guess that the retribution he feared would fall, not upon the tribe of Isaacs, thus established in English government, but upon the unfortunate Jewish people as a whole, from the German nation that Isaacs had gone to Paris to protect. For there was no doubt in Chesterton's mind 
that it was his work at the peace conference to strive for the survival of Prussia, no matter how Europe and the rest of the Germany suffered. The new witness hated the Treaty of Versailles in its eventual form as much as Hitler hates it, but for a very different reason. All human judgments are limited, and no doubt there was a mixture of truth and error in Chesterton's view of the years that followed. But in the universal reaction from the war spirit to pacifism, the truths he was urging received scant attention. His really amazing prophecies fell on deaf ears. He will almost certainly, Monsignor Knox has said, be remembered as a prophet in an age of false prophets. And it is not insignificant that today it has become the fashion to say, as he said 25 years ago and steadily reiterated, that the peace of 1918 was only an armistice. Monsignor Knox in the Panegyric preached in Westminster Cathedral June 27, 1936. Just before leaving England for the front, Cecil had married Miss Ada Jones, who had long worked with him on the paper and who continued to write both for it and later for G.K.'s Weekly, doing especially the dramatic criticism under the pen name J.K. Prothero. Later on, she was to become famous for her exploit in spending a fortnight investigating, in the guise of a tramp, the London of down-and-out women. She wrote in the darkest London and founded the Cecil Houses to improve the very bad conditions she had discovered and in memory of her husband. At this date, Mrs. Cecil Chesterton visited Poland and wrote a series of articles describing the Polish struggle for life and freedom. Several Poles also contributed articles to the paper. There was not, I imagine, on the staff one single writer with the kind of ignorance that enabled Lloyd George to confess in Paris that he did not know where Teshkin was. Here was the first tragedy of Versailles. The representatives of both America and England were ignorant of the reality of Europe. Wilson was, as Chesterton often said, a much better man than Lloyd George, but he knew as little of the world which he had come to reconstruct. He was, too, a political doctrinaire, preferring what was not there in the shape of a League of Nations to the real nations of Poland or Italy. And with the American, as with the Welshman, international finance stood beside the politicians and whispered in their ears. An interesting article appeared in The New Witness by an American who said that no leading journal in his own country would print it any more than any English one. He described the opposition of masses of ordinary Americans to the League of Nations and how a Chicago banker, who, however, had no international interests, had hardly agreed with this opposition but the same banker had written to him next day, eating his own words. In the interim, he had met the other bankers. This American correspondent held with the new witness that the League of Nations was mainly a device of international finance so framed as to enlist also the support of pacifist idealists who really believed it would make for peace. Only one thing, said the new witness, would make for a stable peace. Remove Prussia from her position at the head of Germany make her regaining of it impossible, make a strong Poland and a strong Italy, as well as a strong France. Later on, they said they had disapproved of the weakening of Austria. But though I do not doubt that this is true in principle, I cannot find much mention of Austria in the paper. Poland, Italy, and Ireland fill their columns and the freeing of England. They claimed that theirs was in the main the policy of Clemenceau, but both Chesterton and Belloc admitted that Clemenceau even if he desired a strong Poland as a barrier between Germany and Russia, shared with his colleagues an equal responsibility in the destruction of Austria, which proved so fatal. 
he was too much a Freemason to desire many Catholic states. The interests of France were not those of Italy, which certainly went to the wall and was turned thereby from friend and ally into enemy. And the new witness summed up the fate of Ireland in the suggestion that Lloyd George had said to Wilson, If you won't look at Ireland, I won't look at Mexico. Both Lloyd George and Wilson were too anti-Catholic to do other than dislike, in Lloyd George's case, hate is the word, Catholic Poland. It is certain that Lloyd George, in particular, worked savagely against the Poland that should have been. A commission appointed by the Peace Conference reported in favor of Poland owning the port of Danzig and territory approximating to her age-long historic boundaries, and in particular, including East Prussia, in which there was still a majority of Poles. Lloyd George sent back the report for revision. They made it again on the same lines. It was a strange anomaly that this man should have sat at the council table representing a great country. In the past, men had sat there who not only knew much of Europe themselves, but who had had as their advisors the foreign office with all its experience and tradition. Bellock pointed out in an article on Versailles that the English tradition had been to hold a balance between conflicting extremes and thus to bring about a peace that at least ensured stability for a long period. But here was a man too ignorant to realize the dangers of his own ignorance and therefore seek help from experience. This peace would be, Bellock foretold, the parent of many wars. The Czechs got much of what they wanted, just as D'Annunzio got Fiume for Italy by seizing it. Poland wanted for Versailles and enlisted her allies. Yet while the peace conference was actually in session, Germans were persecuting Poles in East Prussia, so that many thousands of them fled into Poland proper and thus diminished the Polish population in East Prussia before any plebiscite could be taken there. Lloyd George and Churchill sent a British expeditionary force to Archangel to assist the white Russians, but when the Bolsheviks invaded Poland, she was not supported. Nor did the Allies send her the raw material they had promised to rebuild her commercial life. Again and again, our papers reported pogroms in Poland. Yet investigation by writers for the new witness failed to discover any pogroms in the cities in which they were reported as occurring. Powerful are the words in which, in April 1919, Chesterton foretells the future that will result if power and her historic port are refused to Poland. We know that a flood threatens the West from the meeting of two streams, the revenge of Germany and the anarchy of Russia. And we know that the West has only one possible dike against such a flood, which is not the mere existence, but the might and majesty of Poland. We know that without some such Christian and chivalric shield on that side, we shall have half Europe and perhaps half Asia on our backs. We know exactly what the Germans think about our nationalities in the West and exactly what the Bolshevists think about any nationalities anywhere. We know that if the Poles have a port and a powerful line of communication with the West, they will be eager to help the West. We know that if they have no port, they will have no reason to help the West and no power to help anybody. We know that if they lose their port, it will not be by any act of English public opinion or any public opinion, but by the most secret of all secret diplomacy. That it will not even be given up by the English to the Germans, but by German Jews to other German Jews. We know that such international adventurers would still find themselves floating on the top of any tide that drowned the nations, and that they do not care what nations they drown. We know that out of the whole world, the Polish port is the one place that should have been held and the one place that is being surrendered.
In short, we know what everybody knows and scarcely anybody says. There is one word to be added for those detached persons who see no particular objection to England ceasing to be English, who do not care about the national names of the West, which have been the greatest words in the poetry of the world. So far as we know, there is only one ideal they do care about, and they will not get it. Whatever else this betrayal means, it does not mean peace. The Poles have raised revolution after revolution, when three colossal empires prevented them from being a nation at all. It is not in the realm of sanity to suppose that, if we make them half a nation, they will not some day attempt to be a whole nation. But we shall come back to the place where we started. After another cycle of terror and torment, an abominable butchery into a place where we might in peace and perfect safety stand firm today. Not by any act of English public opinion would Poland be weakened. Not by any act of English opinion Prussia strengthened or Ireland depressed. It was the horror of the situation that no act of English public opinion seemed possible, for the organs of action were stultified. When they could act by fighting and by dying, Englishmen had done it grandly. Not all that they had done had, Chesterton believed, been lost. Because of them, the cross once more had replaced the crescent over the holy city of Jerusalem. Because of them, Alsace and Lorraine were French once more, and Poland lived again. But their sufferings and their death had not availed them yet to save England. And what is theirs? Though banners blow on Warsaw risen again, or ancient laughter walks in gold through the vineyards of Lorraine, their dead are marked on English stones, their loves on English trees. How little is the prize they win, how mean a coin for these. How small a shriveled laurel leaf lies, crumpled here and curled. They died to save their country, and they only saved the world. From the Collected Poems, pages 79 to 80, The English Graves. In the New Witness, he wrote, July 25th, 1919, On Peace Day, I set up outside my house two torches and twined them with a laurel because I thought at least there was nothing pacifist about laurel. But that night, after the bonfire and the fireworks had faded, a wind grew and blew with gathering violence, blowing away the rain. And in the morning, I found one of the laurel posts torn off and lying at random on the rainy ground, while the others still stood erect, green and glittering in the sun. I thought that the pagans would certainly have called it an omen, and it was one that strangely fitted my own sense of some great work, half fulfilled and half frustrated. And I thought vaguely of that man in Virgil, who prayed that he might slay his foe and return to his country, and the gods heard half the prayer, and the other half was scattered to the winds. For I knew we were right to rejoice, since the tyrant was indeed slain and his tyranny fallen forever. But I know not when we shall find our way back to our own land. English soldiers in Ireland felt, as we all remember, a strong sympathy with the Irish people. Most of them, said the new witness, became Sinn Feiners. This was an exaggeration, but certainly their opposition to acting as terrorists led to the employment in their stead of the jailbirds known as Black and Tans. And in England itself, the feeling was stirring that grew stronger as the years passed. The soldiers, who were the nation, had won the victory. The politicians had thrown it away. A rushed election before most of the men were demobilized had brought back the same old politicians by turning, so G.K. put it, collusion into coalition. A coalition government had been in wartime comprehensible and defensible, precisely because it is not concerned with construction or reconstruction, but only with the warding off of destruction. 
a peacetime coalition could do nothing but show up the absurdity of the old party labels, for if these meant anything, they meant that their wearers wanted an entirely different kind of construction, at which, therefore, they could not collaborate. How could a real Tory cooperate in construction with a genuine radical? It was the culmination of unreality. The idea that it succeeded, for the moment, because the country really believed that Lloyd George had won the war, seemed to Chesterton the crowning absurdity. It succeeded because the party machines combined to finance their candidates and offered them to a rather dazed country whose men were still in great numbers under arms. There is naturally no dissentient when hardly anybody seems to be sentient. Indifference is called unanimity. How then could this indifference be thrown off? How could the returning manhood of the nation be given a true democracy? Was there still hope? If there was, never had the new witness been more needed than now. It had told the truth about political corruption. Today, it had to fight it. We are not divided now into those who know and those who do not know. We are divided now into those who care and those who do not care. Thus wrote Chesterton in an article about his own continued editorship of the paper. Politics would never have been my province, either in the highest or the lowest sense. I have hitherto known myself to be merely a stopgap. But my action, or rather inaction, as a stopgap has come terribly to an end. That gap will never be filled now, till God restores all the noble ruin that we name the world. And the wisest know best that the gap will yawn as hopelessly in the history of England as in the story of our private lives. I must now either accept this duty entirely or abandon it entirely. I will not abandon it. For every instinct and nerve of intelligence I have tells me that this is a time when it must not be abandoned. I must accept a comparison that must be a contrast, and a crushing contrast. But though I can never be so good as my brother, I will see if I can be better than myself. The same attacks on financiers and others constantly reiterated might well have put Gilbert in the dock where his brother had stood. But I think the upshot of the case against Cecil had not been entirely encouraging to the winners. Then, too, G.K.'s immense popularity made such an attack a still more doubtful move. Cecil had been less well-known than Gilbert, but far better known than a Mr. Fraser and a Mr. Beamish, a pair of cranks against whom Sir Alfred Mond brought a libel action in 1919 for having, in a placard shown in a window in a back street, called him a traitor and accused him of having traded with the enemy. In this case, Sir Alfred Mond, of the Mond Nickel Company, giving evidence, said that he always disregarded charges made by irresponsible persons. Charges had been made against him in The New Witness, which was edited by Mr. Gilbert Chesterton. All the world regarded Mr. Chesterton as irresponsible, but he was certainly amusing. And he, the witness, had read most of his books. He had once procured with such difficulty a copy of The New Witness, his lordship, did Mr. Chesterton charge the witness with being a traitor? Mr. Smith, counsel for the defense. Yes, in the new witness. Irresponsible was not quite the mot juste. The unfortunate Fraser and Beamish were not of the metal to win that or any case in that or any court. There was a kind of solemn buffoonery in choosing these two as responsible opponents in preference to the irresponsible G.K. Chesterton. At any rate, damages of £5,000 were given against them, which gives some measure of the risk G.K. took in making exactly the same attacks. 
Gilbert had not so much natural buoyancy as Cecil. He got far less fun out of making these attacks. Still less had he the recklessness that made Cecil indifferent, even to the charge of inaccuracy. That charge was, in fact, the only one that Gilbert feared. Writing to a contributor whose article he had held back in order to verify an accusation made in it, Gilbert remarked that he had no fear of a lawsuit when he was certain of his facts. He did not fear fine or imprisonment. He had one fear only. I am afraid of being answered. There was another thing he feared, hurting or distressing his friends. This was especially a danger for one, so many of whose friends were also his opponents in politics or religion, and who was now editing a paper of so controversial a character. With H.G. Wells, he had a real bond of affection, and an interesting correspondence with and about him illustrates all Gilbert's qualities, consideration for his subordinates, for his friendships, concern for the integrity of his paper, sense of responsibility to Cecil's memory. During an editorial absence, the assistant editor, Mr. Titterton, had accepted a series of articles called Big Little H.G. Wells from Edwin Pugh, which seemed to be turning into an attack on Wells instead of an appreciation. Chesterton wrote to Mr. Titterton and simultaneously to Wells himself. Dear Wells, the sudden demands of other duties, which I really could not see how to avoid, has prevented my attending to the new witness lately. And I have only just heard on the telephone that you have written a letter to the paper touching an unfortunate difference between you and Edwin Pugh. I don't yet know the contents of your letter, but of course, I have told my Lockham tenants that it is to be printed whatever it is, this week or next. I am really exceedingly distressed to have been out of the business at the time. But if you knew the circumstances, I think you would see the difficulty. And my editorial absence has not been a holiday. As it is, I agreed to the general idea of a study of your work by Pew. And I confess it never even crossed my mind that anybody would write such a thing except as a tribute to your genius and the intellectual interest of the subject. Nor can I believe it now. It may strike you as so ironical as to be incredible, but it is really one of those ironies that are also facts. I rather welcome the idea of a criticism in the paper, which so often differs from you, from a modernist and collectivist standpoint more like your own. I should imagine Pew would agree with you more than I do, and not less. I will not prejudge the quarrel till I understand more of it, but I now write at once to tell you that I would not dream of tolerating anything meant to be a mere personal attack on you, even if I resign my post on this point, and I had already written to the office to say so. But I do not believe for a moment that Pew means any such thing. I regarded him as a strong Wellsian, and even more of an admirer than myself, though he might be so modern as to use a familiar and mixed method of portraiture, which is too modern for my tastes, but which many use besides he. For the moment, I suggest a possible misunderstanding, which he may well correct by a further explanation. I had said something myself in my weekly article, demurring to a possible undervaluing of you long before I heard of your own letter. Even when I am in closer touch with things, of course, many things appear in the paper with which I wholly disagree. But the notion of a mere campaign against you would always have seemed to me as abominable and absurd as it does now. I do not believe anyone can entertain it, and I certainly do not. I am perfectly willing to do you anything that can fairly be shown to be justice, whether it were explanation or apology or anything else. This is all I can say without your letter and Pew's side of the case, but I feel I should say this at once. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton.
P.S. I have arranged for your letter to appear in next week's number, but I may have more light on Pew's attitude by then. To Titterton, he wrote, I do hope this work will not turn into anything that looks like a mere attack on Wells, especially in the rather realistic and personal modern manner, which I am perhaps too Victorian myself to care very much about. I do not merely feel this because I have managed to keep Wells as a friend on the whole. I feel it much more, and I know you are a man to understand such sentiments, because I have a sort of sense of honor about him as an enemy, or at least a potential enemy. We are so certain to collide in controversial warfare that I have a horror of his thinking I would attack him with anything but fair controversial weapons. My feeling is so entirely consistent with a faith in Pew's motives, as well as an admiration for his talents, that I honestly believe I could explain this to him without offense. I am honestly in a very difficult position on the new witness, because it is physically impossible for me, really, to edit it, and also do enough outside work to be able to edit it unpaid as well as having a little over to give it from time to time. What we should have done without the loyalty and capacity of you and a few others, I can't imagine. I cannot oversee everything that goes into the paper. I cannot resign without dropping, as you truly said, the work of a great man who is gone and who, I feel, would wish me to continue it. It is like what Stevenson said about marriage and its duties. There is no refuge for you, not even suicide. But I should have to consider even resignation if I felt that the acceptance of Pew's generosity really gave him the right to print something that I really felt bound to disapprove. It may be that I am needlessly alarmed over a slip or two of the pen in vivid descriptions of a very odd character, and that Pew really admires his big little H.G. as much as I thought he did at the beginning of the business. If the general impression on the reader's mind is of the big wells and not the little wells, I think the doubt I mean would really be met. Somehow, the letter to Titterton got into the hands of a Mr. Hennessy, who, after Gilbert's death, sent it to Wells. Wells wrote, Thank you very much for that letter of GKC's. It is exactly like him. From first to last, he and I were very close friends, and never for a moment did I consider him responsible for Pew's pathetic and silly little outbreak. I never knew anyone so steadily true to form as GKC. Besides the cleansing of public life, two other things were seen as vital by the new witness, the restoration of well-distributed property and the restoration of liberty. Under the heading Reconstruction of Property, Bellock set out a series of proposals, highly practical and very far from what is usually called revolutionary, that savings, for instance, made on a small scale, should be helped by a very high rate of interest, and the purchase by small men of small parcels of land or businesses or houses should be freed from legal charges, while these should be made heavier for those who purchased on a large scale, thus encouraging small property and checking huge accumulation. He pointed out how vast sums could be found for such subsidies out of the money spent today on an education which the poor detested for their children and which most of the wealthy admitted to be an abject failure. Most of those, he noted, who oppose distributism do so on the ground that the proposals are unpractical or revolutionary, which generally means that they have not examined the proposals. His own were certainly practical and would by many be called reactionary, but he admitted one doubt. Besides the overwhelming difficulty of turning the current of modern socialism, the doubt whether Englishmen, from long disuse, had not lost the appetite for property. Chesterton's own line of approach to the double problem was also twofold. 
In a volume of essays published near the end of the war and called The Utopia of Usurers, he remarked that an anarchic figure, which the more timid Tories profess to fear, has already fallen upon us. We are ruled by ignorant people. The old aristocracy of England, in his view, had made many mistakes, but certain things they had understood very well. The modern governing class cannot face a fact or follow an argument or feel a tradition, but least of all can they, upon any persuasion, read through a plain impartial book, English or foreign, that is not specially written to soothe their panic or to please their pride. There had been reality in the claim of the old aristocracy to understand matters not known to the people. They had read history. They were familiar with other languages and other lands. They had a great tradition of foreign diplomacy. Even the study of philosophy and theology, today confined to a handful of experts, was not alien to them. On all this had rested what right they had to govern. But today they rule them by the smiling terror of an ancient secret. They smile and smile, but they have forgotten the secret. On the other hand, the ordinary workman had the advantage over his probably millionaire master by the necessity of knowing something. He must be able to use his tools. He must know enough arithmetic to know when prices have risen. The hard business of living taught him something. Give him a chance of more through property and liberty and see what he will build on that foundation. The war had already shown not only the courage of our men, but their contrivance. Their trench newspapers, songs and jests, their initiative as sailors and as airmen. At home, the same thing was happening. Allotments had sprung up everywhere and solved the problem of potato shortage. Men were doing for themselves a rough kind of building. The inclination to get away from the machine and do things oneself was on the increase. Armistice and the men's return were heralded by outdoor tea parties with ropes stretched across the streets for safety. The outburst of pageants was spontaneous and national. It's time, said Chesterton, for an army of amateurs, for England is perishing of the professionals. Vitality seemed to be flowing back into national life, but bureaucracy does not love vitality. Agitated town councils met and stopped the tea parties, fought against street markets through which allotment holders could sell their produce cheaply, but heavy rates on land reclaimed and buildings erected by hard work. Town families living in single rooms had secured plots on building estates and run-up shacks for themselves and their families. They were forbidden to live in these dwellings, only intended as temporary, but far more healthy than living eight people to a room in a slum. The new witness suspected that the real objection in the eyes of councillors was a lowering of the value of neighbouring plots for wealthier purchasers. Worst of all, the allotments were taken, fields sold for speculative building, land dug in public parks, taken away in the name of amenities. The little spark that could have been fanned into a flame was crushed out. An episode of a few years later best illustrates the spirit Chesterton was fighting. In 1926, a threat arose to the traffic monopoly from soldiers who put their war gratuities into the purchase of omnibuses which they drove themselves. The London General Omnibus Company decided to crush them, and with the aid of a government commission succeeded. Chesterton's paper followed the struggle with passionate interest. Just as he believed that the small shop actually served the public better than the large, so too he believed that these owner-drivers would serve it better than the combine. But if it could have been proved that the combine was more efficient, Gilbert would still have championed the independence. It was better for the community that men should take responsibility and initiative for themselves, even if the work could be done more efficiently by wage slaves. 
To his dismay, he found that the trade unions did not dream of applying this test and that they were aligned against the pirates, as the independent owners were usually called. He had always been an ardent supporter of the trade unions. To him, it seemed they were trying to do the work of the ancient guilds under far more difficult conditions. But after the war, for the first time, a little note of doubt creeps into his voice when he is speaking of them. They were still vocal for the rights of labor, but they had begun to lay stress exclusively on the less important of those rights. Writing of the loss of the allotments, he suggested in one article that the trade unions might well use some part of their funds in purchasing land to be held in perpetuity by their members. But I doubt if he much expected that they would do so. Many trade unionists were working for the bus company and were more concerned about their conditions of work than about the handful of drivers who were their own masters. But the unions had begun to stress almost solely the question of hours and of wages to fight for good conditions, but no longer for control or ownership, to demand security, but to agree to abandon many of their rights in return. It was a chill fear, and for long he resisted it. But in these terrible years, it had begun to shake him. Were the people of England losing the appetite for freedom and for property? Were the trade unions, from lack of leadership and confusion of thought, beginning to accept the servile state? End of chapter 22.